Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beetle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Beatles Revolution number 36 with a very special guest coming up in a bit. Don McLean, Mr. American Pie himself. Hi, producer Andrew. How's things? Things are good, Ken. A very, very special guest coming up on this podcast. Don McLean is going to join us. In all the years, everybody says, oh, you met everybody. I've never met Don McLean in all these years and always wanted to. Um, great songwriter, local guy from New Rochelle, and... You know, when you think about the craziness of this, an eight-and-a-half-minute song, a single that's eight-and-a-half minutes long in 1971, you want to talk about the music business splitting in half. You've got Yummy, 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 I've Got Love in My Tummy. You know, there's three-minute pop songs that are still the kings of the day, and this guy writes an eight-and-a-half-minute war and peace epic about music, about history, and about the loss of faith in America, in a way. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And that song continues to this day. We play it on Q1043. Every rock stations are still playing it everywhere. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is amazing. And I've been thinking a lot about, about how big that song is and what it must be like to be Don McLean and be synonymous with the one song. And I kind of... Uh, I, I kind of equate it to like like the Ninth Symphony, you know? Yep. Or Ode to Joy. You know, th this is a song that's going to be around forever. This is the classical music of the era. And, you know, some bands have hit songs, some artists have hit songs. And in a hundred years, people aren't going to be singing them. People aren't going to be learning them. But American Pie, as you explained to him for all the uh, the music testing and resources that we have here at Q1043 and iHeartRadio, it's an enduring work, as enduring as any of those those classical mu uh, music pieces. But imagine, you know, as you mentioned, it's a perfect analogy, Beethoven's Ninth, Ode to Joy. It's his farewell in writing. It's his last symphony. He's completely deaf, and this is what he leaves the world. Imagine it's really your coming out party. You've had some... FM Underground hits on your first album, 69, but the world doesn't really know it. But this album, American Pie, Starry, Starry Night, suddenly it feels like even though you've been playing every coffee house from here to Kathmandu, suddenly the whole world, you're on Ed Sullivan, you're on Mike Douglas show, you're literally everywhere, you know, you ubiquitous because of this song. And, you know, it, it's not, it's not a hit song in the sense that it's, Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, done. It's kind of there, but the chorus comes up over and over again. It's eight and a half minutes long, but it starts with singing about Buddy Holly. And we really go into history of music business. Now, he never really talks about it too much about, you know, he, he doesn't explain the meanings, nor should he. I Would you like it if somebody said, Andrew, explain what these lyrics are in your band? It would be awkward, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I, you know, I've kind of wrestled with that a little bit um, in my own, you know, limited career. I think it, in some ways, it adds to the enjoyment to have a story, to have, for, for fans to think, oh, I heard that this song is about this or that, that there's some sort of 
uh, th there's there's some place that discussion can start, but I definitely respect that um, he he doesn't want to sort of give it away because there's this idea that when you release music, it's it's not really yours anymore. It right. belongs to the listener, and I and I really appreciate that. And you want it to in my own teeny tiny limited way. I've had a collection of one act plays published called "The Show Must Go On." Dramatist play play service, like shameless plug. But it, it was a collection of things done off-Broadway, and it gets done around the country. And it's really cool by these, you know, amateur theater things. And I love it that these little kids have life. And somebody will write to me sometimes, like, and I always encouraged it, like if the artistic director or an actor, if somebody has a question, just ask, you know, if I can help with a character or what does this mean? Maybe you don't understand the rhythm of the word or something. But somebody wrote, you know, there's a, a, a disconnected family drama called Thanks about a dysfunctional family coming back together in Thanksgiving. And they wrote, I, I see it as synonymous really for politics of where we are of an absent father and a mother trying to take on both roles. You know, is that correct? And I thought, no, there's no wrong that's not correct or incorrect. I thank you. I'd never thought of it that way but however you see it that's how you should put on the play you know with the the casting and the energy that you see and I just thought in my own tiny little way I guess that's what it's like if you're uh, you know this incredible a uh, prolific songwriter or you've got a handful of hits like Don McLean does let it just be what people want it to be and if they see it as an allegory of Nixon or if they just take it literally as wow you were really upset that buddy holly died weren't you it's fine either way you know let it just you should forgive the expression let it be yeah and i think that's also really rewarding as a songwriter and as a lyricist to have people um interpret your music and for it to be you know someplace in the ballpark um that must be really satisfying and people are going to keep doing that for the, for this song american pie you know, forever, in perpetuity, basically. Right. And he quotes, there's so much Beatledom in this song that, to me, it's inescapable. Third verse, I pulled it up. Helter Skelter in a Summer Swelter. Is there, I think it's fairly clear what yeah. that reference is. The birds flew off with a fallout shelter, eight miles high and fallen fast. Roger McGuinn and all those guys went to L.A., you know, recording eight miles high. It landed foul on the grass. The players tried for a forward pass with the jester on the sidelines in a cast. Now, the jester, the line goes back to the second verse. You know, when the jester sang for the king and queen in a coat he borrowed from James Dean and a voice that came from you and me. Bob Dylan, here's the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, the queen of soul, Aretha Franklin. And here comes just the jester from Hibbing, Minnesota, who doesn't look like a rock star. He's not wearing a gold suit. He's not dancing. He's just kind of singing in an average voice, you know, and he has a motorcycle accident and he becomes a recluse and he's not, he's up in Woodstock. All the rumors were, is Dylan dead? Is Dylan gone? Will we ever see Dylan again? The band says they haven't seen Dylan. So the jester's on the sideline in a cast. Now the halftime air was Sweet Perfume, while the sergeants played a marching tune, we all got up to dance, but we never got the chance because the players tried to take the field. The marching band refused to yield. Right. Nobody could get on the charts 
because of fucking Sergeant Pepper. Right. And, and it might sound like we're picking nits, but as the listeners will hear Don saying, it's something that is going to stay with me for a long time. And anything that I do that's creative, he says that every word matters. So we might be picking apart a song, but it's because this is how much thought he put into this song. Yeah, you, if you're a songwriter, you're going to learn a lot from this interview, I think, because I'm really into the craft of it. I don't write songs, but I love hearing people talk about how it is. When, when Steve Hackett said, like, nothing's wasted, you think you've, you've written something that doesn't fit, there'll be a place for it. Yeah. You think it's steak, but it's actually the icing on the cake, but you, there's a place for it in the meal, things like that, like save the bit that doesn't go into this song because you'll use it somewhere. Just like him saying, you can't just say words. A great wordsmith, think about Bono or Patti Smith, even Dylan, the people we really care about, McCartney, Lennon. If you think that, I mean, just look at the the breadth of, I am the walrus of John doing this crazed imagery of just crazy poetry to see where it takes him. Uh, even happiness is a warm gun. Same thing. Crazed imagery, just going nuts. And then you compare and contrast that to In My Life, which is a Don McLean kind of thing where every word, every sound is meticulous. It's this perfect little music box with gears that are so small and large and fits together perfectly that if you're in the Beatles, you can do both. You can do Helter Skelter and play as loud as you want and then do In My Life. Yeah, and I think the same thing that made American Pie a hit um, is what has helped it endure. You know, it wasn't that it had a great beat. It wasn't that musically it was something that nobody had ever heard, but it was such a such an interesting story. And more importantly, so many people felt the same way about those things. You know, he uses these sort of vignettes about... Um, these these American images, like a football game, right? Right. About high school. You know, American Graffiti had come out a year earlier? Um, a year later? Yeah, it, it was, it was it later. Was, it was just after. You know, it's, it's, all, it's all that kind of... It, it evokes that type of, of image. Yeah. You're right. With, you know, dancing at the sock hop. A teen, I was a teenage... A bronc and bucket with a pink carnation and a pickup truck. That's that American graffiti right. vibe. Do you think that people in your generation who are in their 20s now have any real connection to the, the content of the lyrics or that just kind of rolls over them? Is it just the chorus? I guess what I'm asking is, is it just, we were singing Bye Bye Miss American Pie, drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Is it just that chorus that has kept the song front and center all these years? I, for as long as I can remember, not to quote Don McLean, um, but for for as long as I've known about the song, I, I've understood the connection to Buddy Holly. Um, I feel like that's something I learned from a friend at school. This was, I I don't remember hearing it for the first time. It's, it's kind of one of It's just always been things. there. Yeah, and it's like, like... Like I don't remember the first time I saw Star Wars because I've always remembered Star Wars having seen it. And ironically, 
Um, one of the things that has sort of kept this song in my psyche for so many years, other than hearing it on the radio, is the Weird Al parody, <laughs> which is, it, it's really a parody of like the radio edit, so it's like four and a half or so, right. four minutes, and it's about Star Wars. Got it. Got it. But it, it's interesting. Imagine if you wrote a song and the last line at the end of the verses is whether it's, do you call what was revealed, you know, we sang dirges in the dark, whatever the line lead that leads up to that, the last line of the verses is the day the music died. The day the music died. And from that point forward, from 1971 forward, whenever they bring up the anniversary of Buddy Holly's plane crash, when, or it's a concert, or to commemorating Buddy Holly, the title of the article or the title of the day is always called The Day the Music Died. The line you wrote has redefined the actual action in history, mm-hmm. and it, they've used your words, not simply Buddy Holly's plane crash. That's just wild to me. You know, I, I can't imagine how that feels. It's as if, what, you know, what if you wrote about, I don't know, a, a, a Civil War battle, and you wrote, you know, you know, the, or like uh, you too, perfect example, Sunday, bloody right. Sunday. And that becomes, they always re- reference it as Sunday, bloody Sunday, not anything else. It's in the first or second paragraph of any history account. <laughs> yes. Is your song title yeah. is the word you sang. That's got to be wild when you've changed the lexicon of how you refer to historic facts because it bends to your song, not mm. the other way around. Yeah. It's not like it was called The Day the Music Died and he wrote that. He wrote that and every reporter went, you know, The Day the Music Died, Plane oh, yeah. Crash, Buddy Holly, Richie Vell. That's, that's yeah, unbelievable. So I, I don't know if people of my generation get the other, the other references in the song or really Don's, <coughs> um, Don's kind of angle with, with the entire thing. But I think as long as people are going to high school football games and as long as they're going to prom and as long as they're in marching bands or enjoying music, those lyrics are going to and and the great tune, obviously, the yeah. melody, those are they're going to resonate with people. And, and anyone who's compelled to could certainly find a lot of interpretations of it. I mean, we, you'll you'll hear the Don McLean interview. One thing I didn't get to. His song, Vincent, Starry, Starry Night, this heartbreakingly beautiful song, and, and I Love Her So, which creates a song that Roberta Flack sings that became a huge hit about him singing it, Killing Me Softly with his song. It was one of the biggest hits in the world in the 70s. And she writes, I heard he sang a good song, Songs of Despair. You know, and I, I went, he was strumming my pain with his fingers, singing my life with his song. Killing me softly with his song. I mean, that's an ode to him. And I never got, I, I, hopefully I get a part two going. So there's a hit song about how emotional you made this other artist feel that they wrote a hit song about how well you mm-hmm. I mean, imagine you just go home, have dinner going, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's why Don doesn't <coughs> mind talking about American, American Pie again and again. Right. And again, he's he's doing an album tour right now. Right. Promoting his new album. And I guarantee you he's going to play it. 
And he has to, and he knows it. And you know what? There are times I've heard singers and people go, well, I'm, I'm tired of my hits. I'm not going to play that. You all know it. And I always think, you know, fuck you. People pay, they paid money. It doesn't mean they're going to, they're not booing your new stuff. They're not throwing garbage at you. If they did, that's a different story. But if people have paid to see a concert and you've got a couple of hits, you know, for the love of God, play them. I mean, how, how could you be that rude to the paying audience of not play your hit? You know, and I always remember, I go back to Leonard Skinner when I always said, do you ever get tired of Free Bird and think, God, just one night, you know, don't make me play it. And they all to a man said, nope, the goal is tonight, I'm going to play it better than anybody ever heard it. So that that father with his son leaves and goes, man, they play it better now than they did when I was in college. And that's a pro. That's why that band is touring since 1971. And that's why Don McLean is touring since 71. And that's why McCartney is still touring. And the Stones keep touring. Because you're going to hear Satisfaction. You're going to hear Sympathy for the Devil. And Paul's going to do, you know, 20% of his hit catalog because that's all he can get in in three hours. But you're always going to hear hits because there's respect for the audience. Like Randy Bachman always said, you're never, I'm never leaving the stage without playing Taking Care of Business for you. Even if I'm alone with a ukulele, I'm playing it for you best I can. Yeah. So without further ado, we go from the greatest songwriters of the era, from the Fab Four, and ask him about his connection to him, what he thinks of the marching band that refused to yield. Here's Don McLean. You want to talk classic and classic rock, and somebody in all the years I've done this have never had the honor of meeting until today. Mr. Don McLean, welcome to Q104.3. much. For the first time, that's wonderful. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Um, you know, your music has been part of this world forever. It never fades. When we talk classic rock, Beatles, Rolling Stones, American Pie, it's been part of the conversation from the day you released it. And when I tell you, we don't play it out of love or remembrance it is as vital to people who are 18 to 24 year old now as they were in 1971. Thank you. Beautiful thing to say. How about I appreciate that? it. I really do. When you finish this epic work, was there ever a sense of, well, you know, that's, that's got longevity. That's going to last a lifetime. What did, what were your thoughts when you finished it? Well, you know, when it came out, I was immediately, was a, it was a sensation, and I guess I was a sensation of some sort. Um, I've always been behind it, which I always liked. I didn't really want to be out in front of it or anything that I did. But, uh, you know, after a couple of years, there was a kind of a fallout on it, you know, and I got sort of beat up by the critics, you know, well, he, he can't ever follow this and this and that. <laughs> and then the thing started going again and then Vincent started happening and other songs, And I Love You So, Castles in the Air, songs from the album started to not go away. And uh, by the end of the 70s, I had a bunch more hits with Crying, which was number one all over the world. And Castles was on the charts again, Since I Don't Have You was on the charts. So... That was a surprise because most of the a lot of the singer songwriters had now really tanked. We were in the we were in the in the throes of disco, right? And uh, lyric writing and songwriting and folk based, you know, acoustic guitar or whatever electric guitar stuff 
it was it was over and we were really into dance music you know and it's been dance music ever since really when you think about uh rap music that's dance music and yet and yet and yet here i am you know dj all the days in newfm which is one of the first stations that ever played american pie it's a thrill to have that legacy and here we are q1043 i'm doing a party it was last year with st patrick's day and i'm a bar actually close to your hometown in new rochelle i'm up there and the 20 something young guy i'm with as we're wrapping it up says to me play american pie and he said no the the entire bar is 21 year olds and they're we're playing aerosmith and walk this way mm-hmm. and he says just play american pie yeah and i put on american pie and i'm telling you i have no axe to grind i don't need to butter you up an entire bar of 150 20 somethings all sang every note of that song fist in the air singing along drove my chevy to the levee but the levee is dry that little couplet has lived like you know the beatles paul john you it's that couplet just lives on and it's an entire new generation the third one around that has fallen in love with this masterwork well, I don't know what to say. I mean, I've, I've been aware of this, and I'm I'm very touched that people care about it, and that you'll say things like that, and people will say things to me. And, uh, you know, I'm just glad I did something that people loved. And were, I've always tried to do beautiful things. Uh, melodies, I love beautiful melodies, and I love the English language, so I was really uh, careful. Sometimes when people ask me, you know, about songwriting, I'll say to them, you know, every word matters. You don't just throw a bunch of words in to connect to the next note of the melody. Every word matters. And if you make that your your uh, standard, you'll find that when you make every word matter in a lyric, that it'll change the entire attitude of the song, and you might find yourself going in a whole different direction. Because part of songwriting, and if you had John Lennon right here right now, he would say the same thing, uh, is letting the song take you where it's going to take you. You don't know where that song is going. You're taking it in on your radio. If you try to manage that thing and take it where you think it it wants to go, you're going to ruin it. (laughs) You have to be totally open to letting it go wherever it goes. So when I came up with the first part of that song, I had been thinking about Buddy Holly for probably 10 years or more, all the time. I always thought about him. What happened to him? How did I would go into New York to uh, look at microfilm. Really? Because there was nothing on anything in those days. In the 60s, there was nothing on anything. <laughs> you couldn't find out anything about anybody. <clears throat> The only source that you had was the back of an album, and you read the same things over and over and over. And so I would go to the library, you know, to New York, and I'd try to find things out about the plane crash and articles that were written about Buddy. And uh, that came out of me, the first part of the song, just completely full-blown, right from a long, uh, you know, a long, long time ago, right till the day the music died, that whole section. And it was almost like a genie came out of a bottle. I said, whoa, what is that? You know, I sat back and I said, what is it? 
and I thought about it a long time. I knew I had something beautiful that I, I was enjoying. And I came up with this chorus. I said, I want this to be a rock and roll song. And I, want, and I had wanted to write a big song about America. I came up with the chorus. And uh, I wanted a, a crazy chorus. And I loved it. And then I spent about three months just cogitating, you mm-hmm. know, and thinking Ruminating about on the it. thing, you know. And I finally decided that I wanted, that I was creating this rock dream, which was a, that music and politics run parallel forward. So in about an hour, I wrote the song. I just scribbled it out on this thing. I started working on it. And I had a plan for it and everything. And... Um, Brought it into the studio, and everybody said, what's that? You know, <laughs> I get a lot of that, you know. Don, that's long, yeah. So it took a long time for the guys in the studio to figure out how to play it. Uh, they really couldn't play it. And then finally, uh, we figured it out. Think about this, folks. 1971, there's a song out that's eight and a half minutes long that's on one hand personal and is also the history of a music and the loss of faith in America and in leaders, eight and a half minutes long, and it's a number one hit, and we played it yesterday on Q1043, and we're gonna play it again today, and it's just astounding to me. When we talk about, you know, I'm a Beatles geek. You said your son loves Mm -hmm. the Beatles as well. Um, Talking about to young bands, when you said about songwriting, how every word counts, producer Andrew, my friend here is in a young band. They're just getting going. We talk about the process of how you try not to kill each other and try to write something that comes out. So we know the Beatles were rejected by every record company, rejected Brian Epstein first time he came around to London. Am I correct in reading that your first album, Tapestry, was rejected 72 times? Well, not that many, but a lot. A lot. 2030, I don't know. It, was, it seemed like it never ended. The rejection never ended. Part of it was because I didn't want to part with my publishing on my songs. They uh, wanted that, and they wanted to own the songs, and I didn't want them to own my songs. So I finally found, uh, after it looked like the end of the road, I mean, I really wasn't going to be able to get this thing out. And uh, Alan Livingston, who had been behind the whole... Capitol Records uh, in the 1950s, he signed all the major acts from the different areas of music. In folk music, he had the Kingston Trio. In in rock and roll, he had the Beach Boys. And he had the Beatles through EMI. He signed Sinatra. He signed all those people, the biggest people, Peggy Lee and um, Nat King Cole were all on Capitol. So he was the man that did that. And... Uh, he decided to start a new label called Meteorites Records, and he uh, discovered me uh, sort of inadvertently because there was a a guy named Robert Elstrom who was doing a little movie about me, and uh, Elstrom was looking around for money for his film, and Meteorites had a film division, and they said, well, we don't want to give you any money for this movie, but we want to sign Don McLean on the record label. So I got signed, and uh, they paid for the record because I was like very much in debt right off the bat making this record. Who who wasn't right? 
and I didn't like that because uh, you know I didn't I didn't want to be in debt, and so they pulled me out of that and uh, made a beautiful album. And the cover is iconic. You always see that blue cover. I mean, it's been there forever. Isn't that amazing. And um, who came up with the idea of the American flag on your thumb? George Whiteman. You want to talk about an iconic cover? Yeah. I mean, we're we're talking this. That's right up there yeah, with anything yeah, the Beatles, yeah. the Stones. George yeah. Whiteman. He was a fashion photographer from California. And Media Arts discovered him. That album was supposed to be a Media Arts record, and they ended up being sold to United Artists just as it hit. If they'd stayed with that album, they would still probably still be in business now. Wow. Would, but, it, would it have been as big? Would it have had the launch... If you didn't have United Artists, if you didn't have it. You know, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, we'll never know. Probably it was better to be with United Artists. But Were you happy with the cover? Were you happy with Oh, I was. I I felt like I was in really good hands, you know. I had been with uh, a lot of major acts as an opening act. Once I signed with William Morris in 1969, they put me on the road with like Ten Wheel Drive, the, the James Gang, Steppenwolf, uh, Three Dog Night, um, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Blood, Sweat, and Tears had me on the road. The original group, they were very successful. And I was always on, would go on before them and do half an hour in front of, you know, thousands of people every night. And uh, I got to experience the Columbia vibe of Roy Haley's studio out in California yeah. and see how these guys, these guys were really knew how to make records and um uh so i had never been around anything like that before and so i was had a little bit of an experience in knowing and knowing i I love making records when i was a little boy i was home a lot with asthma and i would sit by that radio that, that big piece of furniture in the living room and hear the radio and i would uh Play records, 78s are all we had. And uh, I would listen to that stuff through that speaker, and I just lived inside that speaker. So I developed really good ears for making records, hearing things behind other things and stuff like that. So that was all part of what was going on with me is the record-making process. I was trying to learn about it. I didn't have a George Martin. <coughs> I met with him once, and... He, Really? He wanted to do something, and then I, I had a terrible manager, and he screwed everything up, and I think he probably turned him off somehow. And That's uh, a shame. It, that would have been an amazing collaboration. I really wish I could think have done that. Think of what he, George Martin did with America. Imagine what a Don McLean, George Martin production it because would have Because I have so many ideas that he could have helped me develop. Uh, just I would have been excited knowing that they were going to be better than I thought they were. That's, that's what your that's hope a, is. Yeah, that's a good producer. I've had a lot of some producers have done that, but I haven't had the the creative uh, help, you know, that I that I would have liked to have had. And that's every producer that I've talked to, Russ Teitelman and people that I know, and I always say when you work with the greats, you know, when you're producing named artists, are you intimidated? Are you? How do you suggest things? And they say, well, but that's what I'm being paid to do. I'm being paid to help and enhance. They don't need somebody sitting around saying, that's great. You've got that for free. 
that I'm here to listen and say, here's what I hear. What do you think of this idea? Maybe that chorus could use... Well, I enjoyed working with Larry Butler. Uh, Larry Butler was uh, kind of a guy who'd been through the mill, but he's very successful, and he made lots of hit records with lots of people. But i do a record, and he said, oh, let's go in and do this. And he'd go start and play the piano, and the song would break down, and the thing would happen in the middle. And I thought, oh, man, that's... That's that's what I'm talking about. You know, together we did well. We well, we made an album called Chain Lightning and another album called Believers and there were some s- hits on those records. So he he really knew how to do that. And here we are in 2018 with a new Don McLean album out. This is great. Botanical Gardens. Uh it's on BMG and it's coming out for everybody on Facebook tomorrow and you know, it'll be out there this weekend. Um you know, it's funny, releasing an album now is a totally different world from what you and I have known our whole life. It's digital downloads, it's Amazon. Mm. And yet, to me, there's still something tangible about holding mm. a CD. I'm rebuying my entire vinyl record collection mm. again. Mm. My wife and I have vinyl dinner, mm-hmm. and all the albums you see here on the walls I had given mm. away for charity and we decorated with it and now i'm just rebuying all of it and everybody's making vinyl again isn't that amazing yeah. good vinyl too from what i hear very yeah, high quality is incredible i never I, as a songwriter and as a performer and as a recording artist i never got rid of vinyl i had a couple of thousand albums you kept yours oh yeah because there's songs Brilliant. on there that you'd never hear again because they would never release those albums on cd so, oh yeah, I kept everything because that's an archive of music, of songs for me as a performer or whatever. So I kept everything and I have all kinds of stuff. Um, but uh, it was interesting for a number of reasons. I'm very lucky to have had my success in records when there was a record business. And, you know, there were only three major stations in New York that played the hits. Uh maybe only three top 40 stations in New York City. The country still had, you know, breakout markets like Philadelphia and Cleveland and L.A. It was exciting. You know, somebody could get hold of a record in uh, Philadelphia and play the hell out of it, and all of a sudden, you know, it was on the charts. And then you had underground radio also, which was actually FM radio. And my first album, Tapestry, was an underground sensation. I mean, people played the whole album and talked about the songs. They liked the fact that the songs were all different. And um, so well, once I had the next album, which was a pop thing, it was almost like I'd gone commercial. <laughs> so I immediately lost my audience. And I started when I had this massive world audience, but I'd lost my original base. And I kept doing that. You know, I would come out with songs that would lose the audience I was building, and then I'd build, catch it later down the road. Or I'd do Crying, which I had a number one with, and I haven't had many of those, but uh, I said, what are you doing that for? You know, and then I would, well, if you go going country, no, I don't have anything. I just, I'm just here a song I just, and I sing it. It's like the Beatles doing, you know, Act Naturally or something. They didn't go on country. They just wanted to do it, you know. It, it's absolutely true. It's It's weird how... We feel like an artist is our own when they're underground. And as soon as they get success, mm-hmm. we resent it as opposed mm. to cheering them on. I mm. always cheered on the artists that I love for breaking through and making it. 
good mm-hmm. on you. And it was such a time that Don's talked about late 60s, early 70s. So FM Rock is coming, mm-hmm. and he's got an eight-and-a-half-minute masterpiece. And the Doors released their debut album, and the single is seven minutes long with a jazz, blues, rock, organ solo in the middle of it. You know, things that just made absolutely no sense. But I remember saying to Scott Muni, may rest in peace, who was my... Oh, I know Scott Muni. He's my radio dad. He mm-hmm. was, you know, you Great knew voice. <laughs> Dan Ingram, all those right. guys. From, he left AM radio to start mm-hmm. FM. And I said, you know, it's one thing when college kids, like Richard Neer and, and Dennis Elsis, Pete Fornatel, they came out of college to do FM radio for no money. Scott walked away from ABC, Top 40, Chime Time, to play this. I said, Scott takes a lot of balls to walk away from a big hit career. He goes, it's where the music was going, Fats. Got to follow the music. And I thought, mm. yeah. Mm. Easy to say. That's great. A little hard to do, but you yeah, did Yeah, except it. when you got a Cadillac in the driveway <laughs> and mortgage payments and exactly. three kids. Don um, McLean is in our studio. Uh, for those of you on Facebook, uh, the album Botanical Gardens will be out tomorrow. You're going to be at City Winery tomorrow night. What's that? Uh, you'll be at City Winery yes, uh, tomorrow uh-huh. night. He'll be playing live in the city. I don't know if there are any tickets left, but if there are, we'll be at Westbury, Westbury also in September with Pure Prairie League. So nice. That's a nice gig. Okay, so City Winery is sold out. Sorry, guys, but go find Don McLean and find him through this album and dig past American Pie and all these amazing hits that you know of Vincent. And see this wealth of brilliant music this man has made. Don McLean, my special guest. We talk songwriting from Beatles to Don McLean. It's part of the fabric of all of this. And you know, was, the rumor was Don that uh, it was Bob Dylan had met the Beatles after the, when he came to New York and said, "Well, you got the world's attention. Now say something." And <laughs> you know the, how quickly the music changed from "She Loves You," yeah, yeah, yeah into turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. And, you know, Paul was always the tunesmith. You know, he could turn a beautiful phrase. And he studied like you did. He studied classics and Broadway and figured out how how music is supposed to work. When was the first time you heard the Beatles? Tell me your reaction. Um, The first time was the first album. And I couldn't tell one from the other. You know, because of their accents. Nobody could. Right. Who, it was who's really who? hard to figure out who was who because the accents were so different. And so that just started. I think I was still at Villanova, maybe, and just about to not go back there anymore in January of 64 when I saw them on the Ed Sullivan show. Is that possible? Yes, that's exactly it. But the following year, I knew a girl who knew another girl, and I got (laughs) tickets to Shea Stadium, so I was there. Were you at Shea? Oh, yeah. Oh. I was at Shea Stadium. I saw the whole thing, and... uh, Obviously, you couldn't hear anything, but... You could hear. You could. Mm -hmm. Where were you sitting? I was down below, down, you know, in the uh, lower area. Well, there were good seats. What did you think? Um, well, they, there was so much energy that it actually <clears throat> caused this little cyclone of air inside the stadium. In other words, people were making so much noise that it was moving air, and the air was circling around. So it caused wind to happen. 
And uh, I remember that. I thought it was that was uh, fantastic and wonderful. And uh, they did a lot of songs that were basically, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with every song they sang. But uh, to me, they did a lot of songs that were uh, crowd pleasers and loud. You know, like sure. Mr. Moonlight and uh, Babies in Black and these kind of sort of high energy. Did he miss Lizzie? And- yeah, those kind of things. And I was, I know I was waiting for, uh, you know, I Feel Fine, which I loved a lot. So then they did that. And and then they were on only for an hour and off they went. I think they flew off in a helicopter. <laughs> you know, when you're playing to 50,000 people mm. for the first time, our friend Crazy Sid Bernstein mm-hmm. from the Bronx who always told the story, booked him at Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, little names that are part of the story that changed the world, mm-hmm. he always remembered was Nat Posnick, a little Jewish man, of course, for the box office, says, Bernstein, mm-hmm. you gotta, you're the one with the four kids. How many nights you got? He goes, two shows. He goes, can I tell you? You should have booked them for two months. The phone don't stop ringing. Wow. And he said, so I guess I was going to drop off a check at Carnegie Hall for the deposit, and I kept thinking, where could you, where could you put a band that had, for that many people? And he said, I, I didn't think Yankee Stadium would even take my call, but there was a new stadium in Queens. So mm. I just called and went, hello, my name's Sid Bernstein. How much would it be to rent out the stadium for a night? <laughs> and they hung up and he said, I'm not joking. Is there a, they said, nobody ever asked. He goes, well, I'm asking. Mm-hmm. And they gave him a number. He said, give me, give me a night in August. And, you know, it was such an innocent time. It's something you spoke mm-hmm. of where you could never just make that phone call Again, mm-hmm. or have it happen without a lawyer and a thing. Yep. You know, a, a guy from the Bronx can't call a place in Queens about a band he's never seen yet in England and book a stadium and change the world of rock and roll by doing so. Well, the Beatles were selling three and four million records in, on their albums, and that was huge. It was only after you got around to the later 70s when the music business had gotten to the point where, you know, with the Bee Gees, with, you know, 26 million and right. all that stuff, that the, the stadium and arena thing started to become the the basis for everything. Selling out, uh, and the next year they played there in 66, and, and they didn't quite sell it out. They had to work to get it right to happen because that they'd seen that you know? yeah it was done by that point. yeah they were done with it they were done well done touring i guess and then we everybody was waiting you know it was a it was a can you top this all the time and they kept doing it right you know and that was the the great thing about it and the songs were always diverse different and rich the records are very rich and uh they were well thought out uh musically i saw some little thing with Paul McCartney on uh, YouTube, and he was playing bass, and um, just the way he thinks things out is really a big part of his his talent. The engineering behind the the records, not the engineer, but I mean the the musical right. engineering, um, is very very beautiful. Um, Sixty seven comes, and the entire world changes with this album mm. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, you know I have friends who my friend Billy J. Kramer who's part of the British Invasion said that album came out and it just felt like okay as he said you can pull over now this is my stop this is where I get off this is where we all get off because we just kind of sing songs 
uh, you guys go on and we'll watch and cheer you on. You know, so we're, we're done. Well, it's really, a lot of it is, of course, them, but it's George Martin also. It's this gorgeous, elegant sound and the sounds of the instruments, which a lot of them were fed through equalizers that were tube equalizers. You know, a lot of yeah. stuff that was that the BBC and the EMI was like World War II stuff, you know. <laughs> right. But it actually sounds better than anything. Isn't that amazing? These old, that, that board, uh, the sound that rich. came out of that board. Some of that, that guitar stuff, when you hear, um, uh, when you hear George Harrison play those breaks, those, that guitar is, is, the tone is, I don't know how to describe it. It's very silvery and it's very uh, r- rich sounding tone and you know guys like him and scotty moore and luther perkins and people like that you know they played simple guitar but you cannot forget the things they played and so that's the essence of greatness you know you don't have to play a lot of stuff you can't forget what luther perkins does on Folsom prison blues it's part of the song you can't forget what what george harrison did on so many of those records and they're rough they're not polished you know there's little edges to them you know and and, and right. things i love that i think that such a simple song deceptively simple in a way and i love her mm-hmm. and those four notes oh da, yeah da, 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 oh man it, that's the song boy that's those so, four notes yep. you'll never forget that idea no and he does a flat pick on a, on a classical guitar which you know you don't really do but <laughs> How did you did you just pick up uh, playing by doing and watching other people play? Well, I had I was very determined, so I wanted to be a, a really good singer and a really good guitar player. And I played five string banjo too, and I wanted to really be good at that. I practiced all the time, and um, I wanted to try to do everything. I was so young and exuberant. And as I went along, I began to sort of focus in on, over the years, many years, on a certain guitar style that worked for me as a singer, and being a singer primarily, but a serious guitar player as far as it goes uh, in accompanying myself, uh, I began to use a lot of aspects of what I had learned. What I liked was I realized I was never going to be a lead guitar player. I just don't have that skill. But I could do a lot of things on the acoustic guitar um, to support my my voice. Um, all kinds of different players as I rubbed elbows with them uh, through the years. Uh, Brownie McGee and Josh White and... Uh, Seeger and many other players. You, you, know. were all, you were playing the bitter end. You're at the gaslight. Yeah, You're was, part of the mix of the yeah, whole. I, I was always an opening scene. act in the '60s. I learned a lot of three shows a night. You know, nobody <laughs> gave a damn. But <laughs> <laughs> right. I get there later as a stand-up comedian oh, okay. in the late '70s, like early '80s, and the legends are on the wall, and you uh-huh. and, the, and the Clancy brothers, mm-hmm. and you know, and just you'd get up on this crappy little stage oh, that was awful. probably the exact same carpet. You st- oh my god i would it. go there during the day and i said, man, I wouldn't board a horse in this place you know and then at night it was magic exactly and i'd sit there and think boy the history of this of this, this it doesn't have to be any different because look who is there there was one night we're doing a comedy show and i'm on stage and dylan walked in and just sat at the bar and you know i'm trying not to you, you just you, 
I'm trying to just keep going, you know, just don't look, don't look. And he had a beer and stayed there for about a, a few minutes. And then he just left. And you, there was no doubt it was it was him. And I just wanted to say, like, okay, if we could all stop now, because what I'm saying is absolutely meaningless. If you would just, if you would come up here and hum for 30 seconds, we've had it. I saw lots of people. I walked, I don't know if you remember a guy named Will Jordan. He did a the comedian, the he, impressionist. He did an, the first, like, heavy duty Ed Sullivan impression. Right. Right? And he was always on Ed Sullivan doing Ed Sullivan. Right. Well, he actually mentored Richard Pryor. Really? Yeah, I walked in there one day, and he's working with Richard Pryor on his act. And showing him how to, how to structure yeah, an act. Yeah, wow. I, there was Yeah. It was a workshop. You know, there were people. Dick Cavett was a stand-up. I remember seeing him before he ever got going. What was Dylan? You must have crossed paths and... and seen him work well i didn't really i i saw him in 62 in carnegie hall at a, a a folk singing thing and i did sort of cross paths with him in the late 60s maybe 67 um and i had sung at a benefit in upstate new york for the cafe lena and there was a a lady there who had been a dancer and she was an art an artist and she ran this club and it was sort of a very famous place and a lot of people played there including dylan and there was a benefit for her there were frequently benefits uh, for her and uh i sang there uh, along with a lot of other people and in a school uh auditorium and dylan was there and afterwards there was a little reception at uh, a house a farmhouse and Dylan came to that. And I had sung a song called The Circus Song. And it went like this, a little bit of it. From the first Please. album, I did it goes, Cotton candy, chew for a quarter. See if the fat man can guess your way. Anyway, it's a song called The Circus Song. And Dylan said, did you write that song? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I did. He said, that's the most inspiring song I ever heard. He said, "That's pretty cool." He said, uh, "How many how many verses were you sick for? Were you sick for? Because I get what sick a- in the song. I'm in, roller coasters make me dizzy. <laughs> Cotton candy makes me sick. So that was 1967. And by the after, way, we know that's not a man who throws around compliments very easily. And I came home and I thought, I said, "Man, did that actually happen?" <laughs> Because I was in school, you know, and it made me uh, continue, uh, you know, these little bits of validation, you know, along the way would help you. There's something here, right. Well, somebody else knew. I guess I I believed in myself, but it's nice to have someone else that you admire say something. What's it like when Elvis Presley covers that song and you hear the king of rock and roll singing your song? (laughs) Well, I, you know, I, I grew up loving Elvis. Elvis Presley was was the reason why I thought of myself as a guitar person. Somebody, really? Yeah. Not any of the folk singers or anybody else. No kidding. When I was 11, I saw him on the front of TV Guide, and he had like a red shirt on. Yeah, I know the was, picture, yeah. He was playing a, a Martin guitar, like a D18, I guess it was. And then one of the first albums I ever got was Elvis's album. And he was on the back with polka dot shirt on in the studio making the record. And he had that same D18 Martin, uh, his first one. And that's what really turned me on. 
um, and made me want to try to, you know, play a little guitar. And uh, just the kind of things that happened to me are you can't believe. <laughs> um, I had a friend. His name was Brad, and Brad Bivens was his name. And his father was Bill Bivens, and he was the announcer on the Tommy Dorsey television show. Okay. And he had a kinescope of Elvis Presley. So in 1956, when everybody had seen Elvis maybe once, I could see him in their living room on a big screen doing what he did on the the show. Wow. Uh, because and nobody else Mr. had that. Nobody. Mr. Bivens had this 16-millimeter kinescope. <laughs> so I was I was really knocked out because nobody ever saw that, you know, except for one second when when it was broadcast. Right, and that was it. It was gone. I got to ask Paul, like, of all the versions of yesterday that have been covered, what's your favorite? Do you have a favorite? And he said, well, you know, I love them all, but I was the one that I never forgot was Elvis's version because he changed the line mm. to, I might have said something wrong. <laughs> he goes, well, no, you, you did. I said something wrong, but somehow he couldn't bring himself to admit he made a mistake. (laughs) He made a mistake. That's right. And I thought I never, I didn't even hear that until Paul mentioned it. Well, you know the, you know that uh, Gordon Stoker, who I was my really good friend, uh, all the Jordanaires, and uh, every Christmas we'd talk, and always went back to news stories about Elvis, and he said, "No, you, you couldn't tell the prisoners nothing." (laughs) <laughs> they just they just knew it and uh but uh that's a that's a very powerful statement you couldn't tell the Presley's nothing because they knew it already they knew where they were headed and they knew what they were doing yeah the only thing i always felt so cuz i was a fan of like yeah. the early elvis not the jumpsuit vegas mm-hmm. guy and that became at that time kind of a a mockery you know it became a, mm-hmm. a sort of a joke his fans loved it but mm-hmm. to the rest of the rock world you're either you know it's, it's don mcclain simon and garfunkel uh, you know bob dylan or it's beatles stones and the who yeah but don't you get how crass and wrong elvis was <laughs> at the same time being fabulous brilliant and right See, i do now that's the I thing i didn't then i didn't either Right. In fact, when he sang And I Love You So, I thought, well, it's just another one of those songs he shouldn't be singing. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Okay. You know, I want to hear, I, I mean, the only thing that knocked me You want me to hear at, Mystery Train. Don't I, be singing my song. I would song. settle for a burning love. You right, know, right, was, right. I knew he had it. Yeah. And then he comes with burning love. I thought, man, this boy's still got it. You know, why doesn't he, where, is it, where are these songs, you know? <clears throat> but anyway, uh, but, you know, here's a guy who does it's like in the producers, right? When um, favorite movie, he says, uh, "You know, I, I I did everything wrong. Where did they I go, go right?" right. <laughs> and it's like with Elvis, you know, he did everything wrong. Well, where did he go right? He he just was right, you know. And uh, he couldn't be the king of rock and roll and make good movies, right? It's he one couldn't be the, the king of rock and roll and sing only good songs. I mean, that not possible. <laughs> <laughs> you got to kind of do a little of everything. Yeah, I mean, he had to be he had to be wrong, but and 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 yet be so right and still know? be Elvis. Yeah, that's that, that's the thing. I'm not saying he was going to make his own Sergeant Peppers, mm-hmm. but you know, singing in the ghetto and those, I know. those it just I'm like, no, just rock out. Just, yeah, I never liked Suspicious Minds. Yeah, just just rock because out. Because it was too many times at the end. He kept saying it over and over. You know, and I, I like. Yeah, I yeah. really just couldn't couldn't take it. 
So speaking, by the way, Don McLean, my special guest here, Q1043. Speaking of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, I can't tell you how many times through my career I have had to answer the question, when the players try to take the field, the marching band refuse to yield. Uh-huh. And have tried to. I'm not going to help you. I know, but it seemed pretty straight. Even back then, it seemed pretty straightforward to me of like, yeah, when the American players were trying to get on the charts and get songs on, there was a marching band that had taken over the entire field and nobody and else more. was getting in the game. You know, the original is still the original. And, uh, and that is you, my friend. Don McLean. Oh, thank you. An American original, New Rochelle boy. Oh, you're, you're getting you're an award, right? You're getting the uh, whole it, it, the Walk will of Fame be doing or something? That. The, the snow apparently had an effect <laughs> on the, the little dinner they were going to have. Uh, we're going to do that down the road. Other things are happening. Lots of stuff. Lots of good stuff. Nice big headline. Local boy makes good. Yeah. <laughs> Don, with a new album out, Botanical Gardens mm-hmm. on a BMG continued success thank you and what a thrill to finally get to meet you after well all i enjoyed years. this very very much thank you for having me anytime come back <laughs>